come this morning again to Philippians chapter 4, so I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles there with me, the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. We live in a time when it is easy to worry. A weakening economy leaves us anxious about our finances. Will jobs continue to be stable? Will our wages be sufficient to cover our expenses? The rising costs of food, housing, and fuel can leave us wondering about how we're going to pay the mortgage, how we're going to pay the electric bill, how they're going to pay the phone bill, the car insurance bill. The precarious position of our health insurance system, along with the instability of programs like Social Security and Medicare, can leave us anxious about having the resources to take care of loved ones as they grow older and require increased health care. It can cause us to be anxious about having the, the resources to take care of, our, of ourselves as the same happens to us. And it can leave us anxious about the world our children and our grandchildren will be growing up in if things continue down the path they're heading. Political instability continues to characterize our world, and all the more so recently, considering the unrest in Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Crimea, the threat of war is ever-present in one corner of the world or another. North Korea is firing test rockets into the ocean. Iran is attempting to build a nuclear weapon. And now it seems that Russia has aspirations of developing into a dominating power in the world. The earthquake near Encino that happened on Monday reminds us that uh, any moment, something entirely out of our control could destroy our lives as we know them. We live in a time when it is easy to worry. And anxiety is, in fact, ubiquitous in our society. Our families, our finances, our jobs, our future, our health, our relationships, the way people think about us. Our society worries about everything. The Anxiety and Depression Association of America, and yes, there is such a thing, (laughs) reports that more than 40 million adults in the United States have been diagnosed with some form of an anxiety anxiety disorder. That's 18% of the United States population, making anxiety disorders the most common so-called mental illness in the country. With conditions on the books such as acute stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, panic attack disorder, social anxiety disorder, social phobia, specific phobia, And in case we missed anything, generalized anxiety disorder. It's no wonder that the popular health website, WebMD.com, calls us the USA, the United States of Anxiety. (laughs) And people seem to be very committed to finding a solution to anxiety. I did a Google search for cure anxiety, and in 0.41 seconds, I had nearly 30 million web pages, all promising an answer. And then I searched for how to find peace, and in 0.18 seconds, I got 625 million hits. Again, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America reports that, according to a a study published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, anxiety disorders cost the United States more than $42 billion per year. AnxietyCenter.com reports that 43% of Americans take mood-altering prescriptions regularly and that Paxil and Zoloft, two of the more popular anti-anxiety medications, which are also used to treat depression, 
ranked 7th and 8th in uh, the top 10 prescribed medications in the United States, and in 2002 totaled almost $5 billion in sales. Today, you can buy those drugs online without any prescription. Would it be fair to conclude from all that that people are desperate to be free from anxiety? 625 million Google hits, $42 billion in in research, 43% of people on mood-altering drugs, and many people purchasing them without a, a prescription. The world is desperate to find peace. And in the face of all of those statistics and in the face of all of those concerns about finances and health and old age and the state of the world, concerns that seem so basic and so foundational to the very fabric of our lives, in the face of all of that, the Word of God cuts entirely across the grain and has the audacity to command us with utter simplicity, be anxious for nothing. And not only does God's Word lay this duty upon our shoulders, it also strengthens our hands to perform this duty by telling us how. While the world literally drives itself crazy looking for some cure for anxiety in self-help books, in positive thinking seminars, and in the magic bullet happy pills of prescription medication, the cure for anxiety has been clearly prescribed in a 2,000-year-old publication that the so-called mental health professionals have managed to overlook. Here on the pages of Scripture, in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Church of Philippi, we find the antidote for anxiety and the prescription for peace. And it comes in the context of Paul's remarks on the pursuit of spiritual stability. In the opening Uh, Verse of chapter 4, he exhorts the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And over the past number of weeks, we've been studying the means of true biblical steadfastness. How we, as the people of God, will be a steadfast, spiritually stable people, even in the midst of the pressures of a hostile society outside the church, and even amidst struggles and conflicts with our brothers and sisters within the church. That first means of steadfastness was revealed to us in verses 2 and 3, where Paul dealt with the disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche. There we learn that disunity is a grave threat to the stability and steadfastness of any church, and that if we're going to be the sort of people who are truly rooted in the firm soil in Christ Jesus, we must be diligently devoted to preserving unity in the body of Christ. And then in verse 4, we were instructed to rejoice in the Lord always. If, as the Apostle James says, the source of quarrels and conflicts among us is our pleasures that wage war in our members, it only makes sense that we should be commanded to rejoice in the Lord, because when we seek all our pleasure and all our joy in Him, we will find satisfaction, and we'll no longer feel the need to quarrel and bicker with one another about things which, if we could have them, wouldn't bring us as much pleasure and joy as the Lord Himself does anyway. So if we would be marked by the kind of spiritual stability that Paul calls us to as the people of God, we must also relentlessly pursue our joy in the Lord. And then last time, we considered verse 5, 
in which Paul called us all to be marked by an eminent and demonstrable gentleness of spirit. If we're committed to rejoicing in the Lord always, that joy will so satisfy our souls that it will overflow into a manifest gentleness in the way that we deal with others. If our joy is in Him, we can be gentle with everyone else. And it's in that context that we come to a fourth means of cultivating a biblical steadfastness. To be spiritually stable requires not only a diligent devotion to unity, not only a relentless pursuit of joy in the Lord, not only a demonstrable gentleness of spirit, it also requires that we battle all forms of anxiety by means of thankful prayer. We see that clearly from our text this morning in verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And like unity and joy, and gentleness, it's difficult to overestimate the importance of severing the root of anxiety in the Christian life. In his excellent book on sanctification called Future Grace, John Piper writes about how many other sins spring from anxiety. He says, anxiety about finances can give rise to coveting and greed and hoarding and stealing. Anxiety about succeeding at some task can make you irritable and abrupt and surly. Anxiety about relationships can make you withdrawn and indifferent and uncaring about other people. Anxiety about how someone will respond to you can make you cover over the truth and, and lie about things. So if anxiety could be conquered, he writes, a mortal blow would be struck to many other sins. And not only is the fight against anxiety eminently strategic in our fight for holiness, but Martin Lloyd-Jones says that our ability by God's grace to respond to difficult circumstances without anxiety is a great test of our profession of faith. He writes, perhaps nothing provides such a thorough test of our faith and of our whole Christian position as just this matter. It's one thing to say that you subscribe to the Christian faith. It is one thing, having read your Bible and abstracted its doctrine, to say, yes, I believe all that. It is the faith by which I live. It's another thing to live by it. It's a subtle and delicate test of our position because it's such an essentially practical test. He goes on, it is far removed from the realm of mere theory. You are in the position. You are in the situation. These things are happening to you, and the question is, what is your faith worth at that point? Does it differentiate you from people who have no faith? End quote. Surely we want to be people who answer yes to that question. Surely we want to say that, yes, my faith in Christ and in his promises is a living and breathing reality that protects me from anxiety, even in the most trying of circumstances. And yet, so many of us recognize that we are not there yet. And so we must be equipped, friends. We must be equipped to engage in this battle against anxiety and against the unbelief from which it springs. 
And we'll look to this text of God's Word to equip us as we examine what Paul has to say about the antidote to anxiety and the pathway to peace. And we'll outline our thoughts according to the three components that make up this text. Three components. First, we have the prohibition against anxiety in the first part of verse 6. Second, the prescription for thankful prayer in the second half of verse 6. And third, the promise of God's peace in verse 7. The prohibition, the prescription, and the promise. Let's consider then the the prohibition firstly. Verse 6 says plainly, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Now, in order to understand the nature of, of that prohibition, of what precisely it is that we are to avoid at all costs, we've got to first understand what Paul doesn't mean by this command. In the first place, he's not encouraging a whimsical, apathetic laziness in which a person abandons all diligent planning for the future. The Proverbs say that the plans of the diligent succeed. An idle man will suffer hunger. So to be anxious for nothing does not mean to be dispossessed of all responsible concern or to be careless about your life. And so those who imagine that it's somehow a display of great faith to sit around and do nothing to improve the circumstances of their life while they wait on the Lord have surely misunderstood the Bible's teaching on this point. Commentator Homer Kent says it well when he writes, as we make plans in the light of our circumstances, it is our Christian privilege to do so in full trust that our Father hears our prayers for what we need. So as Christians, it's our unique privilege to pray and to trust the sovereignty of God as we plan, not as a substitute for our plans. And neither is Paul prohibiting all kinds of genuine concern, even troubling concern in light of realistically fearful circumstances. In chapter 2 of this same letter to the Philippians in verse 20, Paul uses this very word for be anxious for nothing when he describes Timothy's virtue. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned, same word, for your welfare. This compassionate and sympathetic concern for the spiritual needs of fellow believers is a virtue. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that God has distributed various spiritual gifts to the body of Christ for the express purpose that the various members would care for one another in this way. That's the word again, care for one another, be concerned for one another. And Paul himself, being the good pastor that he was, spoke of the daily pressure of concern that he had for all the churches in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. And so the shepherd of God's flock who feels no real burden for the sanctification and growth of, of his people, the people to whom God has entrusted to his care, well, that man's not worthy of that position. And the Christian who is not anxious in the sense of being eagerly and excitedly expectant to meet the needs of his brothers and sisters in the body of Christ is a Christian derelict in his duty. And we could apply this principle even further and say that parents who are not genuinely concerned about the physical and spiritual well-being of their children, well, they're just not good parents. So Paul isn't intending to forbid these kinds of genuine, responsible concerns for people and the the people and the affairs entrusted into one's stewardship. Not at all. The prohibition to be anxious for nothing 
speaks rather of what we naturally understand as anxiety. It is fretfulness, excessive worry, the the harassing, wearying care that troubles the soul, that distracts the mind, and paralyzes the hands such that duties are neglected. I want to repeat that. It's fretfulness and excessive worry, the harassing, wearying care that troubles the soul, distracts the mind, and paralyzes the hands such that duties are neglected. My mind is occupied, preoccupied. My soul is troubled. And I'm in a sort of paralysis that says I can't go on doing the things that God has called me to do. So we see this illustrated in Martha in Luke chapter 10. You remember uh, Martha had welcomed Jesus into her home and was running around like a chicken with its head cut off trying to make all the proper preparations in order to be a good hostess. And she was rearranging the furniture to accommodate a large crowd and keeping the hors d'oeuvres tray full while also keeping an eye on dinner in the oven. And Luke 10.40 says that she was distracted with all her preparations. And the whole time she's running the household, her sister Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his word, the text says. And so Martha comes to Jesus and says, Lord, can't you see that I'm going crazy trying to do all this serving myself? Tell my sister to help me. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. And so in the midst of of trying to be a good hostess, which is a good thing, you know, these things have to get done. Martha had allowed legitimate concerns to have too great a place in her heart and mind, and she became anxious. Okay, company's coming over. Got to have the food. Got to have the drinks, and we got to rearrange, and all of that. And these things had so occupied her mind that they kept her from the one thing that was necessary, sitting at the feet of Jesus and treasuring his word. This is the anxiety that we must banish from our lives. It's that general spirit of worry that gets a hold of our imagination and says things like, well, sure, everything's okay now, but what if this happens and leads to that? Now, then we'll be in this condition and we'll have no way to get out of it. And Paul's saying that kind of frenzied anxiety arising from the tyranny of our circumstances has no place in the heart of a Christian. No place. And this teaching is simply an echo of the teaching of Jesus himself. Turn with me to Matthew 6, Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The declaration from the king himself about what it meant to be a subject of his kingdom. Jesus spends 10 whole verses. That's a lengthy selection for the Sermon on the Mount. 10 whole verses instructing his disciples on banishing anxiety from their life. Look with me at Matthew 6, verse 25. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried, or same Greek word, do not be anxious about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? 
And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You see, being anxious about these things, that's a mark of the pagans, our Lord says. The Gentiles are worried about these things because they don't have a heavenly father who cares for them, who knows their needs and who is sovereign to meet every one of them. But he's telling his followers, he's telling you, you do. And so when Jesus laments, oh, you of little faith, he's saying that anxiety stems from a failure to trust, to believe in God's caring provision for his children. That's a vital component, a tool in the arsenal. You got to know what you're fighting. It's not just, oh, I'm concerned, I'm anxious. It's that you're failing to believe a promise of God. And so when we fight anxiety, then we fight to believe those promises. And so we're commanded to be anxious for nothing because we have a heavenly father who is sovereign over everything. The prohibition is exhaustive. No matter what combination of difficult circumstances we find ourselves in, we simply are not to indulge feelings of sinful anxiety. The Philippians were facing difficult circumstances in which they were tempted to be sinfully anxious. As we've mentioned before, Paul has spoken of of their opponents in chapter 1, verse 28, of their suffering for Christ's sake in verse 29, and of their conflict in verse 30. They were experiencing the hostility of the outside world as a result of their commitment to Christ. The threat of persecution was very real. And in that stressful environment, Paul commands them to be anxious for nothing. You say, Mike, it's easy for you to stand up there and exhort us to be anxious for nothing. What do you have to be anxious about? You're a pastor at Grace Church. This is a great church. Nice place to be good environment all the time. You're not dealing with the harassing boss, the unreasonable workers, co-workers. You're not dealing with the three screaming kids who are driving me crazy. Easy for you to say. And you might have a point if I was the one who wrote this command. But Paul wrote this command. And he wasn't in his ivory tower on Easy Street when he wrote it. He was in house arrest chained 18 inches away from a Roman soldier 24 hours of the day for much of the last two years. And he was awaiting his trial before a psychopath who would decide whether he would live or die. The great expositor Alexander McLaren made this point well. He said, it's easy for prosperous people who have nothing to trouble them to give good advices to suffering hearts. And these are generally as futile as they are easy. But who was he who here said to the church at Philippi, be anxious for nothing? A prisoner in a Roman prison. And when Rome fixed its claws, it didn't usually let go without drawing blood. 
Everything in the future was entirely dark and uncertain. It was this man, with all the pressure of personal sorrows weighing upon him, who, in the very crisis of his life, turned to his brethren in Philippi, who had far fewer causes of anxiety than he had, and cheerfully bade them to be anxious for nothing. And when the Philippians considered these truths and where Paul was and what he was facing as he wrote this, I believe they were strengthened all the more to battle every inkling of anxiety that had crept up into their hearts, galvanized by Paul's bravery, by Paul's gallantry. He can tell us to be anxious for nothing? Well, certainly if he can be anxious for nothing, we can too. And that needs to have the same effect on you, Grace Life. It is a command from God's own word. It's just as binding as you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder. Be anxious for nothing. But again, I know that just like with the commands of joyfulness and gentleness in all circumstances, these objections arise in your hearts. You say, but Mike, how, how can Paul say that? I mean, I haven't been able to find a steady job for a couple of years already. The bills need to be paid, and I've got no idea where the money's coming from this month. My children are beginning to go to school now, and, and I'm so preoccupied with their safety. I don't want them to fall in with the wrong crowd. I don't want them to come under bad influences. I so badly want them to be saved. In another situation, my, my boss is entirely unreasonable, and I go from crippling deadline to crippling deadline all year round. It's just so much stress. There's a really difficult conversation that I have to have with a brother, with a brother in Christ, and I just know that he's, he's not going to take it well, and, I, and I'm, I'm disturbed by that. I've been in for some tests, and the doctors say it might be cancer. But in the face of all those very real concerns that the Word of God doesn't snicker at or doesn't sweep under the rug, but in the full consciousness of all the concerns and and trials of life in a broken world, our infinitely wise God has so superintended the pen of the Apostle Paul so as to command us himself, be anxious for nothing. But how can that be? How in the world can we be expected to be anxious for nothing? How? And that brings us to our second point, the prescription. The prescription. Look again with me at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So here we learn that the way to be anxious for nothing is to be prayerful in everything. The way to be anxious for nothing is to be prayerful in everything. The reason that we're tempted to become sinfully anxious in the various circumstances of life is because in one form or another, we believe that our needs in that circumstance will go unmet. As much as we might try to be, we know that we are not in control of everything in our lives. And the things we can't control, we worry about. But Paul teaches us in this text that the antidote for anxiety comes from presenting our petitions before the sovereign God of the universe who is in control of everything in our lives and who has promised Philippians 4.19 to supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
The very things that would tempt us to be anxious, the very things that would tempt us to fall off the rails, to lose our focus. It's these very things that we are to take before the throne of grace in prayer. The contrastive parallelism is very apparent. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, let your requests be made known to God. Just as the prohibition was exhaustive, be anxious for nothing, so also is the prescription exhaustive, but in everything. In all the situations and circumstances of life that would be the occasion for sinful anxiety, we are to turn those troubles into specific requests that we can make of the God who causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. Calvin said, in the midst of all our trials, this is our consolation. He says, this our solace to disburden in the bosom of God everything that harasses us. I love that picture, to disburden in the bosom of God everything that harasses us. Or in the language of the Apostle Peter, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. To just unload on the bosom of God everything that harasses us. Well, let's look more into the character of this prayer that's said to be the cure of anxiety. We've already seen that it is to be prayer in everything, that is, in in all circumstances and in all situations. But we also see Paul pile three words for prayer, one right on top of another. He speaks of prayer, supplication, and requests, all three very common words for prayer throughout Scripture. The first word, it's translated prayer in the NAS, is prosuke. On occasion, that's used to describe prayer in a general sense, just the sort of idea of of generally praying, generally worshiping before God. But more often, it refers to specifically to petitions and supplications. And the second word, translated supplication itself, is deesis, which is a specific word for petition. So these two terms are basically synonyms of, of one another, and the fact that they're used together like this strongly emphasizes the petitionary nature of this kind of prayer and the urgency of the needs that we're asking about. And then the final word is requests, itema. And unlike the first two terms with, which describe types of prayer, petitions, supplications, this word describes the specific requests themselves that you ask for. And so there can be no mistaking Paul's point here. The antidote for anxiety is the kind of specific petitionary prayer that makes specific requests of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in the context of a relationship with Him. This prayer, that is the pathway to peace, is not some sort of semi-conscious meditative state that some people call prayer. It is not a turning in on yourself and quieting your mind and and achieving some sort of heightened state of consciousness or transcendental oneness with some generic higher power. That's nothing more than humanistic mysticism, and it's a very popular view of spirituality these days. And at the heart of it is the idea that the path to peace is to be found within yourself. I love this thing that that Al Mohler said once, just sort of contrasting the basic worldviews of the world and of, of Christianity, of the Bible. The world says the problem is outside of you and the solution is inside of you. The Bible says the problem is inside of you and the solution is outside of you. So this is not, this prayer is not a turning in on yourself. It's not finding peace within yourself. 
That's a sort of Eastern mysticism that's been baptized into the polluted river of Western narcissism that materializes in authors like Tony Robbins and Oprah and Joel Osteen. But Paul emphatically contradicts that and requires that these specific requests be made known to God or not just be made known to God like that in a sort of throwaway fashion that we're, we're even me, just prone to read the, the text that way, made known to God, you know, trailing off at the end of that sentence, but made known to God or in the presence of God. The Greek is proston theon. That's the same phrase that was used in John chapter 1, verse 1 to describe Jesus, the Word who was in the beginning with God, proston theon, with Him, in front of His face, before Him, in relationship with Him. So this, this phrase of, of making a request known to God has this, this presupposition of close, intimate, personal communion and relationship. And so all of that reminds us that the cure for anxiety will not be found within ourselves. No, it's as we look away from ourselves and as we look outside of ourselves to this all-powerful, all-sufficient God who works all things after the counsel of His own will. Peace is found outside of us. And this also implies, briefly, that we ought not to pray in vague generalities for God to relieve our anxieties. Sometimes we have the tendency to be vague in our prayers. We say things like, oh, Lord, we pray for James, and then done, stop right there. Well, what, well, what do you pray for James? What, what, to pray means I ask. I, I ask for James. Well, what do you ask for James? Ask for something specific. That's the kind of thing that, that Paul's after in this text. So the cure for anxiety, it's not in, in hurried, quick sort of microwave requests for a generic peace or calm. It is in the quiet submission of an undivided heart that takes specific cares and turns them into specific prayers. I'll say that again. It is in the quiet submission of an undivided heart that takes specific cares and turns them into specific prayers. And furthermore, Paul says that we're to let these specific requests be made known to God. Now, that's a funny way to put it. Make your requests known to God. Paul's point in saying that is not to suggest that we need to inform God of something that he doesn't already know. We read the passage in Matthew 6.32 where Jesus says, the very reason we ought not to be anxious about our daily necessities is because your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And a few verses earlier than that, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, he taught his disciples not to pray with meaningless repetition precisely because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So why does Paul speak this way? Make your request known to God. Well, he does so because as the people of God lay out all their requests before him in prayer, we are casting all our cares on him, as Peter says. It's in this full self-disclosure of our neediness and our helplessness that we express our complete and utter dependence on him for our welfare. And at the same time, we're expressing our confident trust in Him to provide for us. See, we're openly acknowledging, Lord, I, I find myself in a set of circumstances that I just cannot navigate on my own. I'm entirely insufficient in myself to do a thing about them. 
But in the depth of my need, I call out to you who are perfectly sufficient in precisely the ways in which I am insufficient. Where I am weak, then you are strong. Where I am impotent, then there you are powerful. And because you are the only one sufficient to supply my need, I come to you and ask for your grace and for your peace. You see how that glorifies God? That's why God says in Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. See, when we call upon him in the day of trouble, looking to him as our all-powerful provider and deliverer, our need magnifies his sufficiency to meet that need. And so because he delights to display his glory as deliverer, he delights to deliver us. We magnify his deliverance. We magnify his provision by simply being needy and calling to him when we know that need. We need to worship God for the loving wisdom in devising such a scheme where the the pursuit of his glory is the same pursuit as our good. It's not just God's glory and our good. It's God's glory which is itself our good. And one final thought as we consider this prescription for peace. This prayer and supplication which we are to make our requests known to God is to be characterized in its entirety by thanksgiving. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Thanksgiving is absolutely essential to the kind of prayer that cures anxiety. In fact, it's, it's so essential that uh, one commentator, William Hendrickson, said, prayer without thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. Such a prayer cannot rise to heaven can find no acceptance with God. Now, why is that so? That's quite a strong statement. Why would that be the case? Well, first of all, bathing your prayers for peace in thanksgiving ensures that you're not doubting, questioning, or blaming God as you go to Him in prayer. In the midst of trying and difficult circumstances, we can be tempted to complain to God about our circumstances and to rebelliously demand Him to change our circumstances. God, what are you doing? Come on! It's been years. I need a job. I need to pay my bills. I'm praying to you like you say. I'm glad you're laughing. That's a very blasphemous way to think, but I'm too exposed with the sinfulness of my own heart and unfortunately uh, the sinfulness of others' hearts and my brothers and sisters to know that that is not so foreign and weird. That's very at home in some of our hearts and we need to confront that head on. So we don't want to pray that way. We don't want to pray with that rebellious spirit of making demands upon God as foolish as that is. That's not the kind of prayer that avails with God for peace. As we come to Him in humility, casting ourselves in utter dependence upon Him, making our request with thanksgiving requires that we have subjected our desires to His perfect will. So this thanksgiving is not merely an advanced thank you note for his eventually asking your requests. Like, God, please take care of my finances and thank you in advance. That's what with thanksgiving is. No, not at all. That thanksgiving is actually acknowledging the absolute sovereignty of God. That even in the difficult circumstances that you face in life, that even they are gifts 
of God's own providence, circumstances of which he is in complete control. Follow me here. If you're thanking God for everything, like it says in this text, especially for the circumstances that tempt you to be anxious, it means that you're calling to your own mind the reality that God is the providential Lord of your circumstances, the one who ordains whatsoever comes to pass in the language of the confession. By grounding your mind in the truth of his sovereignty, you're already on the way to battling anxiety because this sovereign God, whom you're thanking for this, which means he's got to have some hand in it, is also the wise and loving God who is unwavering committed to his glory and to your joy. If he's the one in control of your circumstances, and if as the perfect father, and if he as the perfect father knows how to give good gifts to his children, then there's nothing to be anxious about. Pastor John puts it helpfully. He writes, people become worried, anxious, and fearful because they do not trust in God's wisdom, power, or goodness. Thankful prayer brings release from fear and worry because it affirms God's sovereign control over every circumstance and that his purpose is the believer's good. I don't want you to miss this. Paul is assuming that we ought to thank God for our trials. And you don't thank somebody for something who had no part in that thing. You follow me? There is a a rock-solid, robust theology of the sovereignty of God in that little phrase with thanksgiving. He's teaching you that God does not, he's not just some sort of like, he's out there, he kind of is controlling everything, he's keeping an eye on certain things, not everything is going the way he'd like, but he's going to make sure that it doesn't go too crazy. No, 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 no. This is not a mere passive allowance of bad things in your life. This is, as I said, the God who ordains by the most wise and holy counsel of his will whatsoever comes to pass. So you can't thank God for your trials when you don't believe God is sovereign over them. But then you'd be at odds with what Paul is saying in this text. And so if you decide to put off your sinful thinking and believe what's said in this text, then you are admitting that God is sovereign in your circumstances. And when you do that, you are on the path to peace. Why? Because the sovereign God, like I said, is also that loving God, that wise God who is in control of everything in your life and is kindly disposed to you because of Christ. You follow me there? Good. So Spurgeon models this kind of thankful prayer that is the antidote to anxiety. He says, Lord, I'm poor. Let me bless you for my poverty. And then, O Lord, will you not supply all my needs? That is the way to pray, he says. Lord, I'm ill. I bless you for this affliction, for I am sure that it means some good thing to me. Now, be pleased to heal me, I beseech you. Lord, I am in a great trouble, but I praise you for the trouble, for I know that it contains a blessing, though the envelope is black-edged. Lord, help me through my trouble. So as we take heed to this prescription for thankful prayer, as we faithfully let our requests be made known to God with thanksgiving, We will receive the glorious promise, number three, that is presented to us in verse seven. We've seen the prohibition, be anxious for nothing. We've seen the prescription, be prayerful in everything. And now we come to the promise. Look with me at verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The sure and tested result of diligently battling against all forms of anxiety by means of thankful prayer is that the peace of God himself will reign supreme in the hearts and minds of God's people. And this verse connects not only to the immediately preceding verse 6, but also to the other means of spiritual stability that we've discovered in this chapter. If unity pervades the church of God, if joy in the Lord reigns in the heart, if a gentle and forbearing spirit is made manifest to everyone with whom we come in contact, and if we remain constant in prayer to our Heavenly Father, the sure and certain result of all of that is peace. Now notice what the text does not say. Paul does not say, in everything let your requests be made known to God, and God will grant all your requests, summarily removing you from every anxiety-producing situation in your life. No. He says that as you humbly and faithfully call out to God for rescue, trusting Him in His sovereignty to bring to you what is best, even in the midst of your trying circumstances, then the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds from that sinful anxiety. You see, this is not a promise that God will change our circumstances. Praise His name that the gospel goes deeper than that. This is a promise that God will change not our circumstances, but will change us and will keep us even in the midst of trouble. And that is such a better promise than ease and comfort that doesn't push us closer to Christ, that doesn't cause us to treasure His glory over and against all the fleeting things of this passing world. Again, Pastor John puts it so well. He says, the real challenge of Christian living is not to see if you can eliminate every uncomfortable issue in your life. The real issue of Christian living is to see if you can trust your infinitely holy, sovereign, and powerful God in the midst of every situation and have His perfect peace. Such a glorious reality. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote of this passage, this is undoubtedly one of the noblest, greatest, and most comforting statements which is to be found anywhere in extant literature. Nothing has greater comfort for God's people than these two verses. Well, let's learn more about this peace, which we're so bountifully promised here. First, we see that it's a divine peace. It's a divine peace. It is the peace of God. This peace of God has its origination in the God of peace, which is the name Paul ascribes to God in verse 9 of this chapter. This is the peace that characterizes God himself. This is the peace which God himself possesses. And God has no anxieties. God has no worries. He is infinitely happy. He is infinitely joyful. And he is infinitely peaceful. Spurgeon calls this peace of God the unruffled serenity of the infinitely happy God, the eternal composure of the absolutely well-contented God. This, says Paul, shall possess your heart and mind. That, the peace of God. But it's not only the peace that characterizes God, it's the peace that God gives, the peace that comes from God. It's that inward tranquility of the soul that is grounded in the presence and the promises of God. William Hendrickson again said, Peace is the smile of God reflected on the soul of the believer 
It is the heart's calm after Calvary's storm. The smile of God reflected on the soul of the believer, the heart's calm after Calvary's storm. The Lord Jesus told the disciples in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. We mean not as the world gives. I don't give it and take it away. I don't give it and let it, and let it just become fleeting and flighting. I give an abiding peace. My peace I leave with you. And wrapping up these concepts of steadfastness, of faith, and of peace all in the one verse, Isaiah prays in Isaiah 26.3, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. So this is a divine peace. It's characterized by God, and it's a gift from God. Secondly, it's a suprarational peace, not an irrational peace, but a suprarational peace. It doesn't violate reason, but it certainly transcends reason. Look again at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, surpasses all comprehension. This peace transcends all human intellectual powers and capabilities of understanding. And this means more than the peace is just so wonderful that you can't even fathom it. It means that, but it's so much more than that. This super-rational character of the peace of God is referring to the fact that this world has absolutely no natural explanation for it. Here you are, a blood-bought disciple and follower of Christ, living in the same fallen world with the same disappointments, with the same broken relationships, with the same heartaches and pain that all the unbelievers you come into contact with live in. And in the midst of the deadlines at work and the sick kids and the mounting bills, the limping economy, the geopolitical unrest, in the midst of all the storms of this life, here you are calm, peaceful, even joyful. And the world looks at you and scratches its head and and, and asks with amazement, how in the world can you be so calm with everything that you've got going on? I just don't understand it. And it's at that point that you can really shine like stars in the midst of the night sky, like Paul says in chapter 2. It's when you can say to them, what you're seeing is the peace of God that surpasses all human comprehension. You see it guarding my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you about it. Well, let me tell you more about it. This peace is a divine peace, number one. It's a supra-rational peace, number two. And thirdly, it is a guarding peace, a guarding peace. This peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that word guard, that's a very vivid military term that referred to a garrison, to a a detachment of soldiers who would stand guard over a city and and protect it from attack. That would have been a familiar figure for the Philippians who were living in a Roman colony. And all throughout the Roman colonies, there were Garrisons stationed precisely in order to protect the Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome. And so Paul says, just as the Roman soldiers stand together and form a garrison of protection around the walls of this city in order to keep the peace, so will the peace of God itself form a garrison around your hearts and your minds to protect you against the pressures and anxieties that would press upon you. 
Now, why your hearts and minds? Just briefly. This is a way of referring to the whole inner person, both of the the thoughts of the mind and the affections and dispositions of the heart. Now, I find this to be extremely valuable insight into God's own view of the psychology of anxiety. Why would Paul say that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds? Why wouldn't he say that it would guard our neurons and amygdalas? Why wouldn't he say that it would guard our hormones and neurotransmitters? I'm being a tad facetious, but the truth is still the same. Paul identifies anxiety here as an issue that is fundamentally of the heart and of the mind. At its root, anxiety is a spiritual problem. Now, there might be physical factors that accompany it, and especially that result from it, as a lot of research would indicate. But modern psychiatry's attempt to classify anxiety as a disease is starkly at odds with the implications of this verse. The cure for anxiety is not merely balanced brain chemistry. We need a garrison over our hearts and minds precisely because anxiety is a spiritual issue, an issue of the heart and mind. Whatever has your heart has you. Is that fair to say? Whatever has your heart has you. For out of the heart flow the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23. And whatever has your mind has you. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. And so if the heart and the mind are precisely where anxiety attacks, then we need a fortified garrison around both so that we might be kept from sin, whether in thought or in desire. And that's precisely what we're promised in this verse. But, oh, we must not forget the final phrase, because this makes all the difference. We know where this peace comes from. It's from God. And we know what we're to do to get it. We're to pray with thanksgiving. But where is this peace found? Look at the final three words of our passage. The peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And this makes all the difference in the world. People search for peace in the attainment of sinful pleasures. They search for peace in between the pages of some self-help book. They search for peace in the bottom of a bottle of pills or in the bottom of a bottle of alcohol. They search for peace within the dark, cavernous recesses of their own corrupt hearts. Some even search for peace in their own good works, laboring for the good of others, thinking that will bring them rest from their conscience. But peace is found in none of those places. True peace, the peace of God, the peace which surpasses all comprehension, the peace that can truly and effectively guard your hearts and minds from anxiety is in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus alone. I know that as you listen to God's word preached this morning, some of you sit there despairing. Some of you sit there and say to yourselves, oh, if that was only possible for me. If only that kind of life of perennial joy and and humble gentleness and anxiety-free, peaceful living, if only that were available to me. But it can't be. I've tried for years to find the peace you're talking about. I've tried for years to go after the joy that you're talking about. It's impossible. Yeah, it's impossible outside of Christ. 
apart from a vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ, entered into by grace through faith alone, none of this is possible. Christ himself said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But in Christ, friend, it is possible. In union with Christ, this peace is possible. And if you find yourself destitute of this peace this morning, perhaps it is because you are destitute of this Christ this morning. And if you find stirring within your breast a sort of holy attraction to this life of peace, and I pray you are, even if that attraction is mixed with despairing, if that attraction is stirring within you such that you find yourself saying, oh, I want that, I want it so bad. I just bid you to come to Christ in whom all this peace and all the other good things in the world are found. The Bible calls him the Lord of peace. Elsewhere, it says explicitly, for he himself is our peace. And still another place, we're told that it's the peace of Christ that is to rule within our hearts. Jesus himself said in John 16, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace in me. Oh, friend, don't make the mistake of thinking that you can have peace from God before you have had peace with God through the repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would have the peace of God this morning, friends, make peace with God this morning by turning from your sin, by abandoning all hope of commending yourself to God on the basis of your own righteousness things you do or things you don't do. And put your trust entirely in the righteousness of another, in the doing and in the dying of another, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my brothers and sisters who, along with me, by God's grace, have fled to Christ for grace and for peace, this is where spiritual stability is found, friends. Pursue it ever and only here, in Christ and in worshipful, dependent, confident prayer to our Father through him, and be anxious for nothing. Father, we do just ask that you would, you would make this a reality, that you would, you would do the miracle of banishing anxiety from our hearts as we avail ourselves of the means of this sort of sanctification, as we, we diligently and intentionally pray and submit before you these specific requests in, in the very midst of the trying circumstances. And, and when that happens, Father, would you confirm the truth of your word? Cause us to marvel at your own glory displayed when the truth of your word is vindicated by delivering this promise of, of the peace of God, the peace that characterizes your very nature, that surpasses all comprehension, and that guards our hearts and minds in Christ. We need such a guard. Oh, we need such a guard. Make us a stable people. Make us free from anxiety. Make us united. Make us joyful. Make us gentle. For we want to stand firm in the Lord. We want to, to stand and endure for your namesake. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.